Okay, welcome to the Refuting Calvinism YouTube channel. Uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, another video in the series called Calvinist Confusion. Now, this series deals with what I believe is the uh, very foundation of the system we call Calvinism. Um, the system called Calvinism uh, really thrives on defining words not according to what the Bible defines the words as, but defining words according to their system. Um, so they'll, they'll go to biblical words, instead of defining the word, biblical words from the Bible itself with other scriptures, they'll impose their own definition upon these words that fits their theological system. And if you buy in to the theological definitions behind these theological words, then if you're consistent, you must become a Calvinist. And uh, so far we looked at uh, four different words in a couple of different videos. In one video we looked at impute and propitiation. Uh, that's one video we looked at. Another video we looked at dead and free will. I encourage you to check those videos out, the other videos in the series, because this, this is the foundation of Calvinism, if you ask me. Uh, but today we're looking at a, a very important word concerning this issue of Calvinism, and that's the word sovereignty. This word has been thrown around quite a bit, and um, it's probably the most favorite word that Calvinists use when they're talking about theology. It is a word called sovereignty. Now what I want to do, do first is give you some uh, definitions from the two most popular uh, confessions of faith used by Calvinists, and um, that way they can't accuse me of strawmanning them. Uh, okay, so let's look at the, first of all, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and you can find it online for yourself looking at chapter 3, which is dealing with of God's eternal decree. Uh, point 1. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So, God out of his most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So this is an eternity past. Before you and I were ever alive, uh, before you and I ever sinned, God determined all things unchangeably whatsoever comes to pass. And they go on to say, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So we'll get to the second part of this here in a minute, because in my opinion, the second part of this uh, is doesn't comport with the first part of it. It doesn't make any sense. How can God in eternity past unchangeably, freely ordain whatsoever comes to pass, and that's the definition of sovereignty according to Calvin, and that God ordains or decrees all things whatsoever comes to pass, but yet how, how could the creature even have a will at all? We'll get into that more in a second. That's, that's uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Let's look at the 1689 uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith. This is one that's probably popular with people like Phil Johnson uh, of Spurgeon.org or uh, James White of AOMN.org. Let's just look at what the first point of this says. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom and disposing all things, and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his eternal, uh, accomplishing his decree. 
So they're saying basically the same thing. That all things whatsoever come to pass, that God by his eternal decree, eternity past, freely and of his own will, decrees unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass, but uh, in doing so he's not the author of sin. Uh, which really makes no sense to me. I'd like to have one Calvinist explain this to me without, uh, you know, uh, giving into some kind of paradox or a, I can't understand, you can understand, we'll never understand this side of eternity. Kind of, I, just explain it to me. I mean, if God reveals things in scriptures, he doesn't reveal it to confuse us. Uh, he doesn't reveal it so we can you give this cop out of, I can't explain, I can't understand. No, God reveals things in scripture because he wants us to understand it. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't bother revealing it at all. So these are what the uh, two confession of faith uh, say. So that, that's what the Calvinists define as sovereignty. So God decrees all things whatsoever comes to pass, including all sin. This includes each person who goes to heaven and each person who goes to hell. You know, and some Calvinists would say, well, no, God only decrees those who go to heaven uh, or chooses those who go to heaven. He doesn't, he doesn't you know, eternally damn those who, who go to hell. He just kind of leaves them to themselves. But... If God, if sovereignty in the Calvinistic system means that God decrees or predestines or ordains all things whatsoever comes to pass, then if you're going to say God doesn't decree or ordain those who go to hell, then you don't have a sovereign God according to your own definition of sovereignty. Do you see how that works? They're playing these word games here. And, uh, you know, John Calvin has some hard words for them. And I would encourage you to check out a video I did uh, called Consistent Calvinism Double Predestination, which is loaded with uh, quote from John Calvin on this very issue of double predestination, which means that God determines who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Uh, so, if, if God decrees all things, whatsoever comes to pass, He doesn't just leave the sinners to their sins and not elect them. He eternally decrees them actively to hell. Uh, so, God decrees all things. And if He doesn't decree all things according to Calvinism, He's not sovereign. That's what sovereignty is in Calvinism, that God decrees or predestines all things whatsoever comes to pass. Now let's look at some proof text here that the Calvinists like to use to support uh, this view of God decreeing, predestining all things whatsoever comes to pass. <clears throat> First one to look at is Isaiah chapter 45 and, uh, and verse 7, which is, this verse is, is I'm reading from the New King James here. Uh, but some translations will use a different word. I'll bring it up here in a second. Isaiah 45 and verse 7 says, and this is God speaking here, uh, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, the, the word I want to focus on here is I make peace and create calamity. Now, the King James Version will say create evil, which I think is, is really not a very good translation. Uh, it's not talking about moral evil here. That's talking about destruction, physical destruction, because he's talking about Cyrus, who he's about to send as God's instrument of judgment upon another nation. So, um, but the ironic thing to me is that Calvinists, you read those those uh, confessions of faith I just read to you, it says that, that God's not the author of sin, not the author of evil. Uh, he does not create these things. But it says here, if we're going to go with the Calvinist version of this, I make peace and create evil, uh, well, if he's creating moral evil, then it, it completely defeats your two confessions of faith that you, you appeal to quite often. And uh, we'll get into some more scriptures here in a minute of why this couldn't be true, that God is creating moral evil here. Now, this is calamity. God's going to bring destruction upon a certain nation using Cyrus 
as an instrument to, to uh, bring destruction upon this nation. And God can use uh, men and women who aren't even uh, following him to bring destruction upon other nations. Uh, and in doing so, he's not sinning. He's punishing or judging a nation who's supposed to be his people or, or a nation who's living in wickedness uh, as, a, as a judgment upon them. So, Isaiah 45 7 is not saying that God creates moral evil. He's creating physical calamity or destruction or judgment upon a certain nation or upon a certain group of people. Uh, but it amazes me that Calvinists will appeal to this. But they're not appealing to the calamity part. They're appealing to a, a translation that will say evil. Because they're trying to say that God is behind it. Well, if God is creating it, he's behind it. That means he's the author of it. Because you're the author of everything that you create. Uh, if, I, if I create a book, I'm the author of it. Uh, if I create a, uh, if I invent something, I'm the author of it. If I create it, I'm the author of it. I'm the one responsible for it. Uh, so that, that's one scripture they use. Just turn over, you know, just probably one page in your Bible. Isaiah chapter 46. And we'll start in verse 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. So, I think it's once again referring to Cyrus. I just read in Isaiah 45. It's God's instrument of judgment. But what they focus here on is, is Isaiah 46.10, which says, uh, and halfway down, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Now they focus on these words, all my pleasure, which means they interpret it as saying that everything that happens is all my pleasure. And that whatever happens, including every sin, every person going to hell, every person going to heaven, everything that's ever happened, thoughts, words, and deeds, from the beginning of, of creation to the end of creation, is all God decreeing it or ordaining it unchangeably, freely, from eternity past. But what is all of God's pleasure? God saying, my counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. Does that mean everything ever? Is that what that means? I mean, you know, I just did a video recently on, uh, you know, Ephesians chapter 1 and, and addressing that and addressing this very issue with Ephesians 1.11 because Calvinists will say all means, doesn't mean all when it comes to God wanting all to be saved, wanting them to perish, etc., or God loving the whole world, but they'll go to this scripture and say that it means all, all, universally, everything. Well, I don't think that's what it means, and I think I can look at just a couple passages here uh, that'll back up what I'm saying here, using the same word used here for pleasure in the Hebrew, and let's look at Ezekiel chapter 18, and let's look at two verses here, in verse 23 and in verse 32. Verse 23 says this, this is God speaking, of course, do I have any pleasure, same Hebrew word there, at all, that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live. So we have God here saying, you know, uh, rhetorically, I have no pleasure that the wicked should die. I had pleasure they should turn and live. And then verse 32, it says the same thing, for I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, said the Lord God, therefore turn and live. So, if God has no pleasure that the wicked die in their sins and go to hell, but rather has pleasure that they turn and live, uh, 
is is God decreeing the eternal damnation of sinners? Is that part of his I will do my purpose to us now, I will do all my pleasure? Well, it can't mean all things now, because we've excluded at least one thing. Because God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they turn and live. So the wicked dying in their sins are going to hell, that cannot be part of all his pleasure, since he has no pleasure in that. So therefore, the Calvinist definite, uh, interpretation of Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, specifically verse 10, cannot be true. And God is not decreeing all things whatsoever comes to pass, because God is not decreeing that the wicked shall die in their sins, because he takes no pleasure in that. Yet, he does all his pleasure. Um, so we have to determine what is all his pleasure. But it definitely does not include uh, the wicked dying in their sins and going to hell. And then we have John chapter 19 and verse 11. This really blows my mind. I've heard, a few, not many Calvinists use this, but I've heard a few Calvinists use this. And that's why I'm going to address it. And uh, they don't just come up with this by themselves. They're getting it from their teachers. They're getting it from people like, you know, James White and, and John MacArthur and John Piper and R.C. Sproul. They're getting it from them. They're not figuring these things out on their own. Let's just go to John 19.11. This is Jesus talking to Pilate here. And let's just start in verse 10. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you, uh, given you from above. Therefore the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now I want to focus on here the one... O-N-E, who delivered me to you has a greater sin. Who is the one who delivered Jesus to Pilate? Well, it blows my mind, but I've heard some Calvinists say that this is God here. But Jesus says, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Well, how can God be a sinner? God, God, I mean, the Calvinists are saying God can't be the officer, but now he is a sinner? No, I don't think so. Let's just turn to Mark 15:1, another gospel, to, to clarify who it is uh, who delivered Jesus over to Pilate. And this is after Jesus went through the face of the Sanhedrin, went through the trial, you know, was was captured by the in the Garden of Gethsemane by the by the the guards, and Peter's or you know, Caucus crowed three times, or Caucus crowed and Peter has denied Christ three times. And uh, now we have in, in Mark 15, 1, verse 1, immediately in the morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Delivered him to Pilate. So the, the chief priests and the, the elders and the scribes and the whole council are the ones who delivered Jesus to Pilate. But it does say the one who delivered uh, me to you has the greater sin. Now, I think the one here is referring to the great high priest. Because he's the one who makes the final decision on his issues. And because he's a great high priest, he'll have a stricter judgment. He'll have the greatest judgment concerning the situation because he's the one who made the final decision. If you read through, I'm not going to go through it myself, but if you read through the, the four Gospels and what happened uh, when Jesus was being uh, interrogated, I guess you could say, or being questioned, uh, the great high priest is the one who's questioning him. And he's the one who, uh, who after Jesus says, I am the Son of God, says, do we, need, do we need any more evidence? And basically tears his clothes, and that's when they go crazy on Jesus. Okay, so... John 19.11 isn't saying that, that God delivered Jesus over to Pilate. It's Caiaphas, the high priest, and the whole council as a whole who delivered Jesus over to them. 
Uh, there's also another scripture I'll use, I use Romans 9, and I've already done a whole video on that, so I'm not going to get into that in this video. I, I would actually go watch that video for yourself, and you'll see the whole of Romans 9 spoken about, at least up until I think about 24 or 25, verse 24 or 25 on that uh, video. And then Ephesians chapter 1, I also just did a video on that, so I'm not going to discuss, uh, you know, verses 2 through 5 or verse 11 on this video. I'll let you look at that video for those issues. Uh, so how can God decree all evil, every little sin, all things whatsoever come to pass, unchangeably by his own eternal decree, and not be the author of sin? Well, don't ask me. Uh, I'm not the one who engages in such illogic. Those are the Calvinists who do that. And I'd like to hear some answers from Calvinists on how God can decree each and every little sin, whether it's a thought, word, or deed, and uh, not be the author of sin. In my video titled, God Hates Sinners, I did recently, I gave an analogy regarding a ventriloquist and his dummy. Uh, well, that is the Calvinist God and all of us. He's the ventriloquist and we are the dummies. Now, I know, Calvinists, I know you don't like uh, people using the robots and the, you know, the puppets illustration, but um, that's just the facts. I, I like to know, uh, I mean, there's no other way around I like to know how how God can decree, ordain, predestined, term, whatever word you want to use for all things, and people even have a will, or, or let alone freedom in any sense of the word, whether you call it a libertarian freedom, or whether you call it some other kind of freedom, a compatibilist freedom, how can he have any freedom whatsoever? It's literally impossible. It's illogical. It can't, it can't be. Uh, and if, and I mean, according to Calvinism, if man has any freedom or any kind of will at all, then, then God is not sovereign in that area where man has freedom or a will. Even if, as some Calvinists say, that you know sinners, people who aren't regenerated, uh, only are free to pick their poison, well, I guess they're free to choose what sin they want. So then God isn't sovereign over that area of their life. Therefore, God isn't sovereign at all, and man is sovereign in those areas. And that's one of the biggest objections Calvinists have to, to non-Calvinist soteriology is that they say, well, man is sovereign in your, in your salvation scheme. No, uh, that's not true. God has chosen how man can be saved, but he's allowed the decision to be made by man. Uh, but that doesn't mean that man is sovereign. So anyway, th th those are, you know, I, I don't understand how man uh, can have any kind of will or any kind of freedom at all and... Uh, in the Calvinist system, if God is decreeing or ordaining all things which are come to pass, and if man does have freedom or any kind of will whatsoever, according to Calvinism, God is not sovereign now. So you have a real problem here, a real conundrum with how you're, def you're defining your words. Let's look at some scriptures where it makes it very clear that God has no part in evil whatsoever. The first scripture I want to take you to is Genesis chapter 18 uh, and verses 20 through 25. And this is a situation with Abraham. Uh, praying for Sodom, we're talking to God about Sodom. And we'll start in verse, uh, in verse 20. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done to get, done to get all together according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still, uh, still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? 
Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge all the earth do right? Abraham has this concept of God that he will always do right. And he's, you know, I know this is blasphemy in Calvinism, but he's holding God to some kind of standard of right and wrong. Now, I don't believe the standard is outside of God, that it's imposed upon God himself. I believe the standard we have in the Bible that's written within our hearts, uh, his law, is a reflection of God's character. So, but obviously, Abraham knows God's character and is expecting him not to step outside of his character. And he's, he's questioning, you know, God, aren't you going to do what's right? Will not the judge of the earth do right? And he's had some kind of standard in his mind to say, God, you should be doing this and not doing this. You shouldn't slay the righteous with the wicked. And, of course, they go through it and, and he goes, you know, starts, I think, at about 50. We, if there's 50 righteous in the city, we spare it for them. And he goes all the way down to 10. And, uh, but the point I'm making here is God will always do right. Now, if Abraham's holding God accountable to not slay the righteous with the wicked, how do you think Abraham would feel? Or what do you think Abraham would say if he knew that God was behind the wickedness of the wicked by eternal decree or eternal ordination? Would he not say, uh, God, you know, you shouldn't kill these people because you're ordaining or decreeing them to do these very things unchangeably. They have no will, no freedom of situation, but yet you're going you're gonna to kill them for it? You're going you're gonna to destroy them for something you decreed them to do? I'm sure Abraham would be even more angry, but of course, if Calvinism is true, even this conversation Abraham's having with God has been decreed, so God is literally behind Abraham asking God these questions, so God is really just talking to himself here. Kind of like he's just talking, like me holding a pup in my hand, talking to myself, uh, you know, Kerrigan, won't, won't you do what's right? Oh yeah, sure, I'll do what's right. Uh, what about 50? Yeah, what about 40? What about the only 10? Yeah, and it's just ridiculous. It's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. That's just one passage I wanted to bring up. And there's another verse I wanted to bring up real quick, and it's uh, Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. That's one little verse. I think it's a really, it's, it's a pretty uh, striking verse here. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? So this is Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19, that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. In other words, God is never going to sin. And not only is God never going to sin, God's not behind sin. And, and to prove that point, uh, well, we'll get that out here in a minute, but let's, let's look at James chapter 1. And I think this kind of proves the point of what the God's not behind sin. James chapter 1 and verse uh, 13. <laughs> And it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Okay, so, not only can God not sin, not only can God not be tempted, but he cannot tempt any man. And, no man, and God tempts no man, and when one is tempted, he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So you're, you're tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil, spiritual forces. Not the devil himself, but the spiritual forces, evil spiritual forces. And they are the ones who 
your evil desires are, are giving into it and you're being enticed, you're being drawn away, you're being tempted. You haven't sinned yet. Uh, it's only when, in verse 15, now when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So desire gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full grown gives birth to brings forth death. Um, but the issue is here is if, if God can't lie, can God decree that someone else lies? If God can't lie, and he can't tempt anyone to lie, and he can't, and, and he can't uh, be tempted himself to lie, then how can he decree or ordain that people should lie, or that people should sin in any sense of the matter, in any kind of way, whether in word, thought, or deed? How is that possible, that God can decree and ordain and eternally and unchangeably all things, every sin? In fact, we all know that sin happens more often than holiness. I mean, even the Calvinists will admit that you sin every day in thought, word, deed. So even the, you know, the person who has correct theology according to Calvinism, who is, you know, elected and regenerated by God, even they can't stop sinning, then that means that God decrees sin in every situation where it happens. And that means that it happens more often. Even with the professing Christian, it happens quite often, every day, at least once a day, in thought, word, or deed. That means that God desires that, that is his good pleasure, above all else. Then how can such a God be holy, holy, holy? How can that be? Then we have 1 John chapter 1, and verse 5, which says, This is the message we have heard from him, and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So if there's no darkness in God at all, then how is it possible that God could create evil in the moral sense, in moral evil sense, or how can God decree evil? And there's no evil within him, no darkness, no evil darkness within him, it's only light or holiness within him, how can he possibly decree evil? And if he can't tempt anyone, nor is he tempted by anyone, if he can't sin, then how is he decreeing or ordaining that people sin? Not just in some circumstances, but in every single circumstance they sin, they're sinning because God decreed or ordained it or, or uh, predetermined it from eternity past, unchangeably. So there's a problem with that. Uh, God can not have any darts in him at all if he's decreeing or ordaining unchangeably from eternity past all things, including all sin, whatsoever comes to pass. There's a big problem with that. So there is no evil in God. And uh, because there's no evil in God, God cannot decree or ordain evil. Uh, then we have this issue of God being angry with the wicked every day, uh, Psalm 7:11. Now, if God's angry with the wicked every day because of their wickedness, but God is decreeing, ordaining, or predetermining every little bit of wickedness they're doing in every circumstance, every thought, word, or deed, then is God now the author of his own anger? I mean, think about this. If you're angry about something, but yet you're the one who's causing this thing to happen, that's causing your anger, wouldn't you then stop this thing from happening if you have the power to do so? If it makes you angry? Of course you would. Uh, in, in, even beyond God being angry at the wicked, in Psalm 5.5 and Psalm 11.5, it makes it, God makes it clear that he hates the sinner. doesn't just hate the sinner and love the sinner. He hates the sinner. And of course, not in the sense that we would hate the sinner. Um, but I'm not going to get into that issue. You can watch my video called God Hates Sinners if you want to uh, learn more about what it, what it means in Psalm 5.5 and Psalm 11.5 when it says God hates sinners. But the fact is, God does hate sinners, according to the Bible. So God's not only the author of his own anger, 
because of the wickedness of the wicked and him decreeing or ordaining that unchangeably from eternity to past, he's also the author of his own hatred for sinners because he's decreeing them to be the way they are. Uh, Psalm 11, 5, I believe, says, one who loves violence, my soul hates. Uh, so, if he's causing them to do violence, then he's, then he's the author of, of his hatred for them as well, because he's ordaining their violence. So, now that he's got anger with, with sinners, and, and hate, has hatred towards sinners, in these explicit verses, Psalm, 11, Psalm 7, 11, Psalm 5, 5, Psalm 11, 5, he's also anger with sinners all throughout the Bible. I mean, just... A few circumstances here. The flood of all of humankind, except of Noah and, and his uh, relatives. Noah and his three sons and their daughter, and their, uh, their wives. God, God was angry with them. And he destroyed them. But yet he was the author of what made him angry towards them? That makes no sense. Um, take the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We touched on that a little bit ago when the uh, situation with Abraham. <laughs> The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, all the wickedness they were doing there, including the wickedness that the people of Sodom wanted to do to the angels. They wanted to know them carnally, man to man. They wanted to commit sodomy on these angels. God was decreeing that. Does that really make any sense? Do the angels give some kind of uh, uh, hint that God is decreeing this when, when they respond to the, the people the way they do? I don't think they do. Uh... God coming back, Christ coming back in the clouds someday and destroying his enemies. That means God decreed his enemies to act that way. And then he decrees the destruction of them. Uh, judgment day, eternal hellfire. God decrees every sin that everyone has done and then judges them for it and sends them to hellfire for it. That makes no sense. Uh, and beyond that, we have you know people in the Bible uh, being angry or, or mean towards sinners and rebuking them. Uh, take one example, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. This is John the Baptist. It says, when, when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath that's to come? So if John the Baptist, you know, who's filled the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, uh, calling the Pharisees brood of vipers, well, if, if they're eternally decreed to be that way, and John the Baptist, the greatest man of born and woman, surely would know this. He knows about God's secret will, like the Calvinists do. Surely he does. Um, why would he call them brood of viper? That seems kind of mean. I mean, they, they are unchangeably this way by God's eternal decree. What, they can't do anything about it. And Jesus does the same thing in Matthew 12, 34. He calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. And then in Matthew 22, 18, Jesus talking to the Pharisees once again says, But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Well, Jesus, didn't God decree their testing of you? Uh, didn't God the Father decree their hypocrisy? Well, then there's your answer. Why even bother asking them that question? Uh, that's the answer to it. And then in Matthew chapter 23, we see this over and over again. This is Jesus really laying it out on the Pharisees and the Sadducees here in Matthew 23. Uh, he says in verse 13, hypocrites. He says in verse 14, you hypocrites. In verse 15, you hypocrites. In verse 16, you blind guys. In verse 17, you fools and blind. And verse 19, fools and blind. And verse 23, hypocrites. And verse 24, blind guides. And verse 25, hypocrites. And verse 26, blind Pharisee. And verse 27, hypocrites. And verse 28, inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And verse 29, hypocrites. And verse 33, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Well, Jesus, they can't. Because the Father eternally decreed that they would go to hell. 
And then he eternally decreed all their hypocrisy, all their blindness, all their foolishness. Uh, they're full of lawlessness. That they're outwardly, or they're white, like whitewashed tombs. They're beautiful outwardly, but full, inside they're full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. God's decreed these things, but yet Jesus is treating them this way. It makes no sense to me. In, uh, in Acts chapter 7, in verse 51, this is Stephen, who it says in the scriptures here that he's full of the Holy Spirit uh, when he's speaking here. He says in verse 51, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Man, Stephen, why are you being so mean towards these guys? I mean, God decreed they would be this way. God decreed that, he would, that they would kill all the prophets. God de decreed they'd be stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, and that they would resist the Holy Spirit. Why be so mean towards them? Doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, Acts chapter 8. In verse 18. In this situation we have Simon, Peter, uh, talking to uh, Simon the sorcerer. In verse 18, And when Simon the sorcerer saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands this Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter, Simon Peter said to Simon the sorcerer, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You neither have part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I say that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Well, wait a minute, Peter. Didn't God eternally decree unchangeably? by his own counsel and purpose, of his own good pleasure, that, that Simon the sorcerer uh, would do this? That he would uh, ask to, to, to get this gift of the Holy Spirit to lay on of hands that people receive the Holy Spirit? Didn't, he, didn't God eternally decree that he would try to pay for it? That Didn't God eternally decree that uh, he'd be poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity? And why would Peter tell Simon the sorcerer to, uh, to pray to God if perhaps the thought of his heart may be forgiven him if God didn't eternally decree it? It doesn't make much sense to me. And then in Acts chapter 13, in verse 9, this is Saul, later on called Paul, speaking to Elymas the sorcerer, because Saul and Barnabas are preaching the word of God to Sergius Paulus, who's a proconsul, also an intelligent man according to verse 7. And in verse 8 it says, But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Listen to how Saul responds here. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at Elymas the sorcerer, and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell upon him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So, but why was Paul so harsh to him? Speaking such harsh words to him. Son of the devil, full of all deceit and fraud, perverting the straight ways of the Lord. Why? I mean, didn't God decree that Simon, I mean, Elmas the sorcerer would be this way? Didn't he decree that? Then why be so mean towards him? Why blind him? Why, why send him to hell in the end if he died in his sins? Doesn't make much sense to me. You know, if, if these people in scriptures, John the Baptist, Jesus, Paul, Peter, Stephen, all men who were men of God, 
if they knew about this eternal decree of God, why would they treat medicine the way? I mean, I'd never treat a blind man who's walking the streets who, who ran into me and say, what are you doing? And push him onto the ground and kick him a couple times. So why are you running into me? Watch where you're going. I would never do that. I wouldn't do it to anyone, whether they're blind or not, but I definitely wouldn't do it to a blind man. That'd be very cruel if I did that. But yet God is doing these things, and these men of God are acting this way towards people who are eternally decreed to be that way unchangeably? That makes no sense to me. The fact is, man is a criminal. Man is not a victim. But Calvinism makes man a victim. A victim of a God who, in my opinion, is worse than the devil of the Bible. The devil of the Bible just tries to influence sinners to keep on sinning, influence sinners to reject God and his gospel, influence sinners to sin to the dead and die and go to hell in the end because he hates them. But yet the God of the Bible... Uh, does not eternally decree that sinners will go to hell, but the God of Calvinism goes one step further than the devil of the Bible. He doesn't just influences, he forces most to go to hell. He forces most by eternal decree, unchangeably, that most will sin in each and every circumstance. That there's more sin than there are than there is uh, righteousness. And that people who are who are going to hell, they're going to hell by eternal decree, not because they've chosen to sin. Or because of Adamson, because they've been eternally decreed to go there. Could you imagine something like this happening on earth? I mean, if man is simply a victim of God's decrees, then he has no guilt and is deserving of no punishment at all. But let's, let's take that, you know, something like that happen on earth. The way a person is born, say they're born with a, a certain color skin or a certain color eyes or a certain color hair or their birth is certain deformity. Uh, they have no choice in these matters. Now you can change the color of your eyes to wearing certain kind of contacts and change the color of your hair by dyeing it. Uh, but you know you usually can't change the color of your skin. And not only that, you can't change the way you're born with. If you're born with five fingers or you know five toes, two arms, two legs, you can't you can't determine that. And to, to punish someone for the way they're born, the way they have no choice in the matter, would be unjust. I mean surely that this nation has rejected uh, racism and slavery because of his uh, injustice of, of, of this situation. But yet we're going to believe in a God who damns people for no choice of their own? I mean, if we're supposed to be like the God of Calvinism, then maybe we should just have a justice system just like his. We should punish people for doing nothing the chosen have done. It's just, something, just, it's just the way they are unchangeably. They can't do anything about it. Who would be responsible for the crime, if a robot committed a crime? Would it be the robot itself, or would it be the person who programmed the robot to do such a thing unchangeably? Of course it'd be the person behind the robot. And of course, the, you know, the Calvinists like this robot and puppet analogy, but it's just the facts, man. That's just the way it is. Unchangeably decreeing all things that are going to pass means I have no will, no freedom, including this video right here that I'm doing that's against your system. God decreed this according to your own system. So why fight against it? And then we have the issue of God expecting something or wanting something that does not happen. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. 
He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in his midst. He also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please. God's asked them to judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard? He's talking about them here. That I have not done it. Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the cloud that they, that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So God expected. He did all the work he could do. Notice he didn't do all the work. He did all the work he would chose that he would do. He, he planted it. He made good ground, but it didn't bring forth the right kind of fruit. He tilled the ground, he planted the right seeds, and it brought forth wild grapes, not good grapes. And that's what happens to every sinner. God does all he can do, all that he's willing to do. He could do more. Now, God, you know, God does have the power, and God has the ability that if he wanted to, he could choose to force salvation on people. But he doesn't do that. Obviously, here we have one very clear passage that God isn't even willing to force the Israelites to obey him. He wanted to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. What more could I have done? What more could have been done to my vineyard that I had not done it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Well, God, because you're eternally decreed that it bring forth good grapes. So God he expected to bring forth good grapes, but eternally decreed it to bring forth wild grapes? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I don't think so. It's not what it's saying here. Uh, so, obviously, God expected something after all he did, and it didn't happen. I guess that means he didn't eternally decree that part, did he? Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. This is right after Jesus does all the woes to the Pharisees and the, and the hypocrites. He says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and the one who kills the prophets and stones her, those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So God wanted to gather the children of Jerusalem together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. How could God want something but then not eternally decree it to come to pass? If God is sovereign in the sense that Calvinist is saying, where he causes all things, ordains all things which are from the past, unchangeably, then why wouldn't if he, if he really wants something, why wouldn't he decree it? There's, there's, there's no will for them. You were not willing, Calvinist. There's no willing for them. It should be saying, but I did not decree it. It should say, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but I did not decree it. That's not what it says, though. That's not what it says. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
in verse 3. First Timothy 2 verse 3 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God, this is a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Once again, we have the issue, does, does God desire something that he doesn't decree? Why would he desire but then decree the exact opposite? Why would he desire for all to be saved from the parish but then decree that most would go to hell? Makes no sense. But of course, Calvinism, in my opinion, makes no sense. In Calvinism, we have a, a God who chooses people for heaven or hell before they're ever born, before Adam sinned, let alone before they ever personally sinned themselves, before they ever committed one sin themselves. And then he decrees, after he decrees who's going to heaven, who's going to hell, because he decrees all things, then, then he decrees that each one who's going to go to hell he created live a life of sin from birth until death just so that he can be just in condemning them to hell for their sin. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Not only does he decree that for the sinner, he decrees for those who are going to be elected, they'll sin every day of their life too, even after they're regenerated. And keep in mind, these people who are sinning, whether it's the elect or the non-elect, they have no choice in the matter. There's no choice. If God decrees it, there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It will happen. Unchangeably. And this is all sin. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, idolatry, uh, human sacrifice, cannibalism, bestiality, homosexuality, the devil and the third of the angels rebelling against God, the new world order, taking the mark of the beast, fornication, and two, which the Calvinists love to hear. Child rape and child molestation. Anytime you mention these, these last two, child rape and child molestation, the Calvinists will accuse you of appealing to emotion. No, I'm not appealing to emotion, just the facts. And keep in mind, I've looked at several of your most common proof texts for this issue, including giving you uh, references to other videos I have done on proof texts you'll use for this position of sovereignty. Uh, so don't just dismiss my whole video because you think I'm appealing to emotion here at the end and just giving the facts of, of what your God decrees. Every sin. Every sin. Including child molestation and child rape. But in the Bible, we don't have the Calvinistic view of sovereignty. In the Bible, we have a God who has laws. A God who's a king. A God who has a domain he rules over, the whole universe. He has subjects, every person, every animal, everything, and he has judgment and punishments. If his subjects, the ones who have the ability to be moral, disobey his moral laws, there are consequences, and sometimes eternal consequences. In fact, for most people, eternal consequences for disobeying his laws. But he doesn't control every little action of each person, as Calvinism asserts. That's not sovereignty. Out of his sovereignty, he chooses to give man free will, and he commands man to use his free will rightly. If man does not, there are consequences for using their free will wrongly. But even though there's consequences for using their free will wrongly, God in his great love uh, provides an atonement for the disobedience of his subjects, which he offers up to all of his subjects through his son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice he made on the cross for us. Each person must, 
choose for him or herself, but are to receive that atonement and to begin to become lawful, law-abiding subjects in the kingdom of God. Because he's a ruler and he expects obedience. In the end, the king is sovereign and will have his way. Those who accept the atonement and become lawful citizens will rule and reign and live with the king forever. Those who reject the atonement and choose to go on in the rebellion, living their life as if they're the king, they're not as if they're the sovereign ruler, and they're not, they will have eternal consequences for their sin. Lastly, I want to address this issue of how this version of sovereignty is the most glorifying to God because he has control of all things and Calvinists will particularly focus on God being sovereign in salvation and because that brings the most glory to him. Well, I beg to differ. I don't think this version of sovereignty or the Calvinists give, give glory to any of God's attributes. It doesn't give glory to his holiness, doesn't give glory to his justice, doesn't give glory to his love, doesn't give glory to uh, his sovereignty, his kingship, his lordship. It doesn't bring glory to any of God's attributes. In fact, it brings all of his attributes low, if you ask me. And I don't see how you can see it any other way. I don't see how you can see it any other way. Once again, the main reason I reject Calvin is because it's not biblical. And the main reason I come against it is because it maligns the character of God. And it's false teaching. And I just hope and pray that, uh, you know, you're edified through this video and that if you're a Calvinist, you'll consider these things, see the other viewpoint, and see how you're really maligning the character of God. That's really a form of idolatry. And I just pray that you'll repent of this, that you'll get right with God, you'll see Him as He truly is, not as you've made Him out to be, or as Calvin, or Augustine, or Luther, or MacArthur, or Piper, or Washer, or Sproul, or any of the other ones have made God out to be. But see God as He truly is. Not sovereign in the sense that you're saying he is, but sovereign in the sense that the Bible says he is. And I think the content I've given today is sufficient to disprove your definition of sovereignty and to uplift God to where he belongs. It's holy and righteous, not having his hands stained with sin, not having any part in sin whatsoever, but he is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is not a man that he should lie or even cause a man to lie. God is holy. He expects you to live holy. Now please, friends, just consider these things and uh, think about these things. And search the scriptures for yourself. Don't just listen to what a certain teacher says, including myself. Search scriptures for yourself and see the facts. God bless you.